Welcome to the Cloud Pod, where the forecast is always cloudy. We talk weekly about all things AWS, GCP, and Azure. We are your hosts, Justin, Jonathan, Ryan, and Peter. The world's most valuable resource is no longer oil, but data. So can you be certain that no one in your organization has uploaded an API key, PII, health data, or proprietary source code to the cloud? Are your log files scrubbed of sensitive information? Listen later in the show to find out how OpenRaven can discover, classify, and alert you when your cloud data is at risk. Episode 98, recorded on December 16th, 2020. AWS tries the Jedi mind trick again. Good evening, Jonathan, Ryan, and Peter. Hey, Justin. Hey. How's it going? Good, good. It's We're here at the final week of reInvent. It's week three. It's been an action-packed week since last recording, as always. And you know, Werner's keynote was yesterday morning, and they're still announcing stuff today. So there might still be a ton of stuff by next week when we record our wrap-up show for the year. You know, it's definitely came and went very quickly, which I appreciated versus Google Cloud Next, which dragged on yeah. forever, which was great. And so, uh, you know, it's been a good week overall for the Amazon reInvent stuff. So we'll get into the, all of that. But we have other news to cover first. Some big news. First up, Jedi is back. Everyone's favorite topic. Woo! <laughs> first of all, they uh, apparently Amazon, you know, rebutted the recent rewarding of the Jedi contract to Azure after they claimed the storage issues. So basically, they filed a brief back on that, and that was unsealed this week, which basically I can summarize for you. Trump made them do it, and it's the wrong cloud for them and keep working on trying to get turned over. And so I suspect sometime in 2021, either Azure will win again or AWS will win after the Biden administration takes over. But they were still not done with this yet. Two years into the podcast, we are still talking about Jedi. I thought it'd be this cute little one-quarter story. And now two years later, we're still talking about it. But you know, a couple of interesting things in the article, you know, Azure again claimed that this is all about AWS, you know, overbidding on the price, you know, not bidding the right amount, basically redoing their bid. A lot of whining back and forth in the article, et cetera. But uh, you can check all that out if you're super passionate about Jedi, which I was two years ago, but now I'm just kind of over it. <laughs> <laughs> I still love that it's the only real actual minimum committed spend on that is like a million dollars. Yeah, yeah, it's a ridiculously small deal that they have just been fighting over forever. But it, it has big ripples in the fact that you win that deal, other government companies, you know, or contractors will start going to Amazon more. Now they're going to Asia more because that's where the government is. And so if you have needs for low latency and all these kinds of things being in the same data centers, you have benefit on Asia, which you wouldn't have on AWS. I see sort of the argument, but you know, at some point you're going to say, why don't you just give the contract to everybody and let the right, exactly. the right solution win for the need. So easy. So easy. Too you, easy. Each, you each get a million dollars and you're each our preferred partner, depending on which one, however you bid each deal, <laughs> which would just make it worse from a procurement side. <laughs> it's like children, right? You got to separate it out, you know? Yeah. I was just thinking that. I was just thinking that. Yep. <laughs> You've got three presents to open. You've got three presents to open. <laughs> <laughs> But his box is bigger than mine. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. His thing costs more money than mine did. At least they have principles. I admire that they're, they're doing this on principle. I mean, having just gone through a very contentious election where a large amount of hearsay was used to claim voter fraud, my tolerance for Amazon's arguments of like, show me the evidence. If you're convinced that Amazon, you know, that this was Trump did it. And, you know, this is all these things that show us the evidence of it. And then, you know, you have a case, but if you can't show me evidence, I don't know that I care. <laughs> it's kind of how I feel about the election at this point too. Show me yeah. the evidence. 
Well, you know, if you are in the security world, you've had a rough week, and I apologize to all of you. And so Hug Security this week, as you know, it started out last week, kind of middle of the week, I saw an announcement, you know, come out that basically FireEye had been hacked by a nation state, uh, most likely Russia, although unconfirmed at this point, APT 48 or 28 or whoever it is, that, you know, they've been a big, you know, been watching them for years, trying to see what they're up to and kind of keeping an eye on them. The thing about FireEye is that no one really knows who they are unless you're a FireEye customer. But, you know, the reality is they are actually the biggest cybersecurity consulting company in the world. So they used to be known as Mandiant before FireEye, which which makes really crappy network hardware, merged with Mandiant, (laughs) which was the leading cybersecurity company under and basically became FireEye Security. But, you know, so basically this is Mandiant at the end of the day, which is the number one cybersecurity company in the world. They're the ones who, you know, you always see out on CNN and CBC and all the things talking about, you know, companies that got exploited and how that happened. And they've been tracking a lot of their foreign actors for a long time. And Kevin Mandia is a pretty well-known person in the security space. So that was a big deal, you know, because not only did they hack Mandiant, but they said that they also got their red team tools, which the red team tools are designed to help them, you know, detect issues in your systems and many times are whitelisted to not be detected by antivirus or other things because they are designed to be red team tools, <laughs> which look a lot like black team tools, you know, so it's a definitely, a, you know, one of those things that is definitely a problem. So then that's now led into this week where we've now found out that the reason why Mandiant and FireEye got hacked was that they were using SolarWinds, which is a very popular open source and commercial enterprise network management system that many, many companies use. And they apparently were compromised by this Russian actor about six to nine months ago and released a DLL and their product that was completely compromised and it allows it to download all kinds of malware and ransomware into your systems via the SolarWinds application, which is a bummer. So if you are a SolarWinds customer you and you don't know about this, there's two critical patches you need to go install right away. You should probably stop listening to the podcast and go take care of that. And then also call your cybersecurity company, maybe FireEye, and tell them that you may have been compromised because you could be in trouble. Now, interestingly enough, uh, SolarWinds says they have 300,000 customers, but claims only 18,000 are probably impacted by this attack, which they're measuring based on downloads of SolarWinds, the two versions that are compromised in this particular case. But, you know, that seems like a misnomer because I know a lot of people who are impacted this week and Twitter is on fire about this as well. Again, this is a supply chain attack. So they got into the CICD platform of SolarWinds, were able to inject malware into signed code from SolarWinds and then distributed by the SolarWinds system out to your system. So very bad. Not a good week. Uh, and definitely if you are involved in that, I apologize for all of your hard work and hug, hugs to all of you out there in operations world trying to fix this problem if it's in your network and you've been exploited. This is also used to attack DHS, Many other government entities, including agriculture, etc. Apparently, Orion, NPM, which is the SolarWinds product, is used quite heavily across the government as well as private sector. Some weird things about this this whole story. One is that the, given the level of the hack, and we know it's going to be way more than eighteen thousand affected users. The news reporting is all very seems to be playing down the severity of the situation, and to the point that if if you read some of the some of the articles that have been published. The way they're framing the FireEye or Mandiant tools, it's all about simulation. Oh, they stole the tools that they can use to simulate attacks on your system. Like those aren't simulations. I mean, they're a simulation if you pay for if you pay for them to come and use them. But but the reality is they're not simulation tools. <laughs> they're probably some of the best hacking tools in the world. Yeah, I, I think this is a situation where the media doesn't understand. You know, we here in technology world, we understand how serious this is and how big of a deal these tools are, and the fact that. You know, Mandy has basically just burned up 
you know, millions and millions of dollars in R&D development tools that they now have to now classify as hacking tools. You know, it's just, it's a huge loss for them as well as it's a huge, you know, huge loss for the community. And then you couple that with SolarWinds is now this big infiltration place. That's a devastating move for SolarWinds as well. The potentially they might never recover from. Only 18,000 customers. I just love the email that we got. Only 18,000 customers. Yeah. Only 18,000. Yeah, my concern is really just how did they get in there, right? It was a compromised, you know, software package of some sort. Like, is that something, you know, that was added to a public repository or is it, you know, is an inside job? You know, because it's, yeah, it's a big well, deal. there's definitely, there was a, apparently there was a SolarWinds issue that happened about six months to a year ago where there was an FTP site that they had. They had a simple password on that was in a dictionary attack. I know that was an issue, but that, again, that doesn't lead you to this necessarily. But again, if you know that a software vendor is a very big, you know, vendor to government or to things that you want to attack, you're going to attack the supply chain and the supply chain is the weakest link for these companies because you think you're protected and then you let the bad guy in the front door because you think this vendor's trusted. That's a tough, tough scenario. So how many other software vendors are they currently targeting? It could be all of them. It could be many, many more. And they could be in a lot more of them. This might just be the tip of a spear, you know, of multiple attacks and you know, the other side of it is, you know, someone mentioned SolarWinds is a pretty big networking tool. A lot of network visibility is done with this. And does this, you know, you blind the monitoring because everyone had to turn off their SolarWinds instance before these patches came out. And then you, you know, you scale out massive DDoS attacks or other infiltration points through networks. A ton of risk, a ton of things. And like I said, if you have SolarWinds, you, you're probably already aware and you're probably already working on this. But if you're not and you do have SolarWinds, please get on it right away because it is a potentially a big, big issue for your system and network. I'm still convinced on the timeline because SolarWinds sends an email to everybody saying that 2019.4 release was compromised, which they released back in November. Yet they also say that they were, they were compromised around March time. So was it March or was it November? Or did somebody modify a build that had already been published to, to inject the deal? I, you know, who knows? I think there's more to it than, than we know just right now. It's very possible. And we'll get more, sure I'm is. sure, as it goes through court and all that. But my, my expectation is that they got in you know, in March timeframe, and they just, I don't know how often SolarWinds does releases. Maybe they only do it, you know, there's a 19.1 and there was a 19.4, and those are the two releases they did last year, and that's the one they got into. I don't know. Or maybe it's a hotfix on top of 19.4 that was where they got into it. I don't know. So we will find out, though, I'm sure, as this uh, continues to be investigated and a lot of uh, analysis is being done. I suspect uh, FireEye to save face will have a very, very comprehensive public RCA they'll be publishing <laughs> about what happened exactly to them and how this works. And I'm sure SolarWinds will have to do the same thing because one of the key things, these any type of hacking situation is being very transparent and very open and honest about where the issues are and what went wrong and how you're going to fix it. I hope so. I'm a little nervous that because they're a security org, or a security company that they'll go the other way and be like, nope, nothing nothing to see here. <laughs> nothing happened. Uh, you can say that when you get hacked and no one else knows about it. You can't say that when <laughs> everyone knows about it. Yeah. Plus disclosure laws now require you to say these things. Well, let's move back on to happier topics, which is reInvent. The presents Yay. keep on coming. So uh, first up was shortly after the show recorded last week, we had the new VPC reachability analyzer. AWS, of course, has been concerned for a while about how customers are connecting their networks via Direct Connect, VPN, Transit Gateways, SD-WAN, and peering, and many, many other things, to the point where they were harassing me quite often because they didn't like the fact that I had one Direct Connect and a VPN backup. <laughs> you know, regular communication from Amazon, like, you know, this isn't this isn't highly available. And I'm like, well, it is. I'm just, I'm using the internet as my backup. They're like, yeah, but that that's not the same thing. I'm like, I know, but for my use case, it's fine. So anyway, so they've now created this new tool, 
to help you analyze those type of scenarios and help you identify areas where your systems may not be communicating properly via some other configuration, a route table, a security group, something else. And they do all this with machine learning and AI because they don't actually send any packets in your network to determine that your system can't talk to each other. They use the, the data that they have through your configuration and they determine machine learning basically most likely your issue is that the routing table is wrong or a NAT gateway is misconfigured, et cetera. It's really great. And you know, for people getting new to VPCs, it can be daunting to troubleshoot. <laughs> and so I think anytime you can give them tooling to help them make their VPC life easier, it's a big win. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, was, the first use I thought of was not necessarily tri- figuring out if something could talk, but if it could not talk and then using that in sets of tests to that security can use to ensure that people aren't accidentally making things too open, like, you know, putting in, making sure that certain private isolated subnets can't be reached by other subnets, et cetera, might be kind of interesting. Yeah. Pretty good. Yeah. I thought of a very similar, like, you know, as someone who abstracts the network layer from, you know, the customers on the AWS platform for my day job, like this is a, you know, one of those things where, you know, we can deploy this and deploy their network for them and run this as like a test to ensure that it's, you know, as part of like a sanity checklist. And then we could even, you know, run a tool like this frequently, you know, periodically just to see as like sort of monitoring, which would be exactly. kind of Yeah. Yeah. So there's all kinds of uses for this. It's great. Well, it's only 10 cents a go as well, which which is a whole lot cheaper than some of the solutions we had POCs for. Mm-hmm. But I still think there are places in the market for companies like Aviatrix because they do do packet injection. They do watch things flow through the network. And now we have support for gateway devices for ingress and egress on VPCs. I think some of that logic will be out of the control of Amazon. They won't have visibility into those those devices. And so there's still going to be a need to have actual tests of packets flowing through the network. They're not completely out of business yet, but... I agree. I had the same thought because immediately I thought all these tools are just done. But then you realize that most most cloud migrations are really, you know, somewhere near hybrid. And there's always an office that you're connecting to these things from or there's, you know, that kind of thing. And so it'll need to be there. Hey, everyone. Jonathan here. I just wanted to take a minute to thank the cloud consulting gurus at Foghorn for helping make the cloud pod possible. These folks truly get it. Cloud consulting experts since 2008, they are premier tier partners with AWS, Google Cloud Platform Silver, and Microsoft Azure partners. From multi-cloud to containers to moving full production workloads to the cloud under the tightest compliance, Foghorn's team of full-stack cloud engineers have been there, done that, gotten the t-shirt, and are ready to share their experience with you. If you're in the market for some talent to supplement your team, visit www.fogops.io slash thecloudpod www.fogops.io slash the cloud pod. Foghorn, the promise of cloud delivered. Well, the uh, next up was the infrastructure keynote, which if you're an old time data center hardware geek like I am, who loves, uh, you know, UPSs and power design and data center thinking and stuff like that, uh, until you found the religion that is a cloud like I did, this is still a good uh, walk down memory lane. And so uh, Peter DeSantis, who's uh, in charge of infrastructure at, at uh, AWS, basically kind of walked us through their data centers, data center design, how they built their own UPS systems because they found that the battery room was a huge single point of failure. Walked us through their ARM chips and gave us some metrics and performance comparisons of ARM chips versus the Intel and AMD equivalent they have in their data center. And then updated us on all of their AWS sustainability efforts 
and apparently they have an AWS water team. I don't know if you guys knew that or not, but whole whole team for water. All really interesting. And then they also had a couple of customer spotlights and one of those being the NFL draft. And NFL gave a, a very lengthy discussion of how they partnered with AWS to you know power the draft this year with COVID, which I know Peter is a big fan of the draft. Have they missed the show because of the draft? So I'm sure this is really important to you, Peter. It was very important. And by the looks of the Niners' current losing streak, this year is going to be even more important. I think the Jets have the Niners beat on that. So yeah, they do. They do. So definitely, if you are an old school hardware nerd, check out the infrastructure keynote. It's worth the repeat uh, broadcast as well as the uh, YouTube videos when they come out if you're curious. Or even if you are in a compliance situation and you need to explain to a customer what does it mean to be an availability zone versus a region, uh, they have some really nice visuals of that and explain their understanding of tolerance of risk based on distance and what those risks are, uh, including up to the point of the meteor taking out the dinosaurs is also on the slide. So good slide fodder for future presentations I will be doing, I'm sure, because that's pretty awesome. That's fantastic, because, yeah, I don't know how many times I've created that dinosaur meteor slide. (laughs) (laughs) I thought all the detail went into on the UPSs was really interesting, because if if you think about the renewable renewable, uh, power supplies they've they've, uh, committed to, which was like 6,500 megawatts, even at just 10% inefficiency for UPSs, that's a massive amount of waste, massive amount of spend. And to optimize that is really important. Their kind of scale, that kind of optimization matters. You know, the data center that you build you're probably not worried about that as much because your costs are high no matter what you do. <laughs> but you know, in Amazon's world, that's the, that's a point of margin in their business. So it's, it's huge. Well, if you're an EMR fan on Amazon, uh, you can now run that on Kubernetes uh, as a new deployment option for EMR. It allows customers to automate the provisioning and management of open source big data frameworks on EKS. Customers can deploy their EMR apps on the same EKS clusters as other types of applications, which allows them to share resources and standardize on a single solution for operating and managing all their applications or creating a really big blast radius for Kubernetes. Yeah, well, I don't think I can recommend running it on the same cluster as like my production app. I will say this is a huge optimization just because a lot of these things are packaged as containers or Docker images. And so this this really helps out those teams where, you know, there's sophisticated build pipelines with all the, you know, data science tooling that you need and you don't have to like sort of reconstruct it to use EMR. So it's great. So Amazon in sort of an admission that their documentation and training content is not the best have released what they're calling spot blueprints or an infrastructure code template generator to generate to get you started with easy to spot. And they say they need this because it takes a long time to learn about spot because you have to start leveraging not only the documentation, the AWS management console and blogs to learn how to properly use spot. So this new capability basically automatically creates CloudFormation and Terraform code for you and is a quick start for all of your Spot instance needs. So if you've been kind of nervous about getting into Spot because you hate all those blog posts or the documentation, this will save you a ton of time and give you a working Spot configuration with a few configuration parameters in the tool. Straight to prod. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no testing. (laughs) It's not just the documentation, though, is it? I mean, if if you think about it, if you already... An enterprise, you've already got enterprise savings, you've already paid for savings plans or RIs. If your instances are already costing, you know, 35% of list price, you're much less incentivized to, to invest in something like Spot. And so does an engineer spend weeks getting all the orchestration to work for Spot or not? They work on something more, more high priority. So I think by giving you something that they can literally hand to you and say, this is how it works, plug it in, it, it sort of lowers the barrier to entry for many enterprises. Well, the same thing we did with containers, right? Like we built built automation to build a container cluster, so you don't have to think about that. All you think about is the task or the Kubernetes object. 
<laughs> all you think about is, you know, really building out the tasks that are the parts of your app. So like this is just obfuscating out the complexity of spot instances and thinking about fleets and thinking about all that stuff. So I think that's a great move. I like to see more of these actually, because I agree. Sometimes I just want good examples that aren't hello world, which is my now cursed, you know, I hate every time I see a hello world example. Cause I'm like, it's not, it's something real. I can't apply that to any other function ever in the future, unless I'm making a website that only blinks hello world. So it just doesn't make any sense. But I, I love these quick start things where here, I give you parameters of what I kind of want to do. And then you give me code that's close or exactly what I need. And then I can just use that. I think that's great. It's also just a great way to learn, even if you end up starting from scratch for your own use. Yeah, I'm going to run this, you know, and compare it against my previous deployment stuff I've already engineered just to like, what did I miss? What has there been a feature enhancement that, you know, I'm not taking advantage of that kind of thing. So this didn't really need that four deep nested loop in my code. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you are been a user of the Amazon EBS throughput optimized and cold HD volumes, uh, you might have been annoyed the fact that you could only deploy them with 500 gigabits of minimum storage and only then achieve you know 500 megabits of throughput for the throughput optimized and 250 megabits per second for the cold HD. And so Amazon heard you loud and clear. And basically, you know, you can create them as small as 125 gigabytes, which I'm glad they didn't call it a cost reduction because it's just the same cost. Just you don't have to provision as much of it. So at least it's properly called this out as what it is. It's a reduction in the amount of data you have to provision, which is kind of nice. Nah, it's a cost reduction. You don't have to, you know, you don't have to provision 500 gig of storage. You can only provision 100 if you want to get the same level of performance. No, you had to provision 125, Jonathan. 125, I'm sorry. <laughs> oh, net uh, about yeah yeah okay i'll speak after the show <laughs> <laughs> just means i have to go back and redo all my cost savings tooling now to, to to figure out what makes sense for people to provision anymore has any of you guys have any of you used the cold hd volumes at all no i learned about this through this announcement i was like oh they have a limit cool <laughs> <laughs> As many things that you learn about through the announcements, like just like, oh, yeah, I didn't know they had that. Or they add a new feature to this thing. I'm like, wait, you had the thing first? I didn't know about that. But now with the show, I, I have less of that now of two years of the show. But the first year, it was a lot of that. Like, I didn't even know they had this. They're adding features to it. It's great. If you are have ever been annoyed at the lack of network information that you get on your EC2 instance, even though they bill you at a per second inc billing increment, Amazon has given you some new visibility into those metrics. They have five new metrics provided to you via CloudWatch, of course, because that's where all good metrics go to die. They include things like AWS allowances for network bandwidth uh, to help troubleshoot network performance issues, which is really them telling you that your EC2 host is potentially shared with other boxes and you have a set limit, even though the box may be 10 gigabits, you might only have one gigabit for your particular instance type. They're now acknowledging that that is a true fact and that you actually will now be able to monitor that. So if there's a noisy neighbor using all your network bandwidth on an instance, you can now tell that, which is nice. It also gives you deeper insight into inbound, outbound bandwidth, packets per second, connections tracked, and PPS to link local services exceeded, uh, which basically, if you're using the loopback to all your communication, that is also a no-no in a shared at world because there's a quota for that too. All things that bit you probably, you never knew about it. Well, yeah, troubleshooting these is nightmarish. You know, like, you know, I didn't read this through this announcement, so I'll admit to not doing my homework, but I'm surprised that they're actually allowing the insight into noisy neighbor. I figured that they were just sort of putting those thresholds in place for, you know, what is, you know, basically specified for that instance type. But even that, you know, I've, I don't know how many times I've run into throttling and, and different network performance issues just because, you know, not really understanding, oh, this instance type, you know, it's this type. So I only get this much. I mean, if you do your testing when, you know, at a 
out of hours, for example, when there isn't a noisy neighbor and you think, great, I'm going to get this throughput, but then it mm -hmm. turns out the reality isn't quite the same. I wonder if any of these metrics will be used for auto-scaling rules. I assume that it's going to be factored into a couple of different things, trusted advisor for cost optimizations, as well as potentially auto-scaling as a capability, like you have this much network bandwidth, you now need to scale up or not. So yeah, they're CloudWatch metrics, so you should be able to use them. Uh, for any metric, right? Yeah. Yep. So yeah, I, I think it's interesting too, they didn't actually call it out in the article that it helps you identify noisy nays, or that's, that's basically what they're doing. They're giving you that insight into what your quota is and basically how you're doing against your quota, which is really all about understanding that use case. So. All right, then uh, as we mentioned it earlier, we teased it, the SD-WAN capability is now coming to the Transit Gateway Connect, which is a new product. The Connect is a ability to attach uh, SD-WAN connectivity link to your Transit Gateway using generic routing encapsulation for higher bandwidth performance compared to VPN connections. Yay, thank you, Jesus. Transit Gateway Connect also supports Border Gateway Protocol, or BGP, for, as we all talk, call it here on the show, for dynamic routing and removes the need for static routes. Uh, there are several benefits to the new Transit Gateway Connect, including native integration with AWS and not having to use a VPN, which is great. Higher bandwidth connections up to 20 gigabits per connect attachment. Uh, sorry, it's five per attachment. You can do four of them together to get to 20. And then increased visibility through performance metrics and telemetry data. So they're giving you great metrics on it. And then end-to-end -end management of your global network with a single orchestration platform, as well as improved security and compliance. You can use private IP addresses on third-party virtual appliances. Now, there are a couple of things you do need to know. It is up to 20 gigabytes, but I did mention it's five gigabits per GRE tunnel. And so they only support four of those as a maximum today, meaning they may support more in the future, which would be great. It does support IPv6 and the dynamic route advertisements via the multi-protocol extensions. And there are several partners who can help Help you manage all of this, including Aviatrix, Cisco, Fortinet, Palo Alto Network, Silverpeak, and more. And you pay for the AWS Transit Gateway attachments with a nickel per attachment and 0 0.02 per gigabyte transfer through the Transit Gateway Connect product. So pretty great. Uh, nice alternative to VPN tunnels, which I appreciate. And that VPC reachability, I'm sure, covers this as well. It's funny because they keep making these major announcements for networking that just, you know, sort of... If you're ambivalent or if you're in discussion or in the design phase for your network topology, like from one week to the next, you can get a an announcement that will change your entire architecture. Yeah. <laughs> and, so it's and the worst part is it's it's not easy to change this part, actually. So like this, like the way you set up your VPC is the way that VPC is going to be set up probably forever because the cost and complexity to move out of it is difficult. And so, you know, I'm envious of companies that started their Amazon journey two years ago when Transit Gateway got announced versus what we built five years ago at the day job where, you know, we're doing VPNs and we're doing, you know, we don't have Transit Gateway. It didn't exist for us at the time. And so we're, you know, now we're saying, well, we want to retrofit that. It's a lot of work. It's a ton of refactoring. And dev teams will cut me if I threaten to, to move on them. So they will. They're mean. Two cents a gig is pretty, pretty steep, though. Pretty steep. Yeah, so I was thinking. Again, this is not for your... You know, this is for SD-WAN use cases. Typically right now, I suspect that that price would be different if it wasn't for that use case because SD-WAN is a, a pricey solution to begin with. And then uh, if again on your EMR friends, there's another toy for you, which is a new dedicated IDE for EMR. The EMR Studio is an integrated IDE that makes it easy for data scientists and data engineers to develop, visualize, and debug data engineering and data science applications written in R, Python, Scala, and PySpark. It does provide managed Jupyter Notebooks because everyone provides Jupyter, managed Jupyter Notebooks these days, and tools like Spark UI and Yarn Timeline Services to simplify your debugging. Interestingly enough, it does support Amazon SSO for authentication out of the box, which is really great, and allows you to log directly into your corporate credentials without logging into the AWS console separately. So this is definitely designed for an end-user type use case, and uh, 
uh, I'm glad to see it. But you know, they're getting a little heavy with these IDEs. I, I, I can probably count seven different IDEs that they have or tooling or CLIs that are specialized now. I'm going to need that IDE for the IDEs pretty soon. I think that's you know not just an AWS thing. It's an industry thing. I'm starting to see that more and more places where you're seeing dedicated IDEs. And as someone who's already tried to centralize these things, because I fear change and and can't keep too much you know on track at any one time. You know, the more these get diversified, the harder it is going to be. But then there's also the out, the counter argument of that specialization will make them you know really feature rich for those users. And no code will make them all go away anyway. <laughs> no code movement. Sure. Okay. These all these web IDEs are it's kind of like the return of the thin client. It really is. Yeah. Yeah. Now with ARM coming to Mac and you know remote development boxes and you know one of the other announcements we'll talk about here in a little bit, you know the need for anything on your desktop is becoming less and less. We're going back to the mainframe day, so it's uh, it's interesting. It's funny how we've done that several times now as a as an industry. I mean, Citrix and virtual desktop was a big pushback to that, and then we kind of came out back out to distributed with web, and now we're kind of going back full circle again because security sucks when you're distributed. <laughs> so it's very very interesting. And likely to repeat again, right? In the next cycle. Oh, yeah, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah. exactly. It'll, it'll all repeat again. Well, Redshift had a ton of announcements. We will not do a full breakdown of all of these because it'll take about 45 minutes to do so. So we'll uh, give you a quick a quick highlight. And if these are interesting to you, they will be linked in the show notes at least so you can go check them out. But they announced the automatic table optimization, new data sharing capability to send uh, Redshift data to other accounts, support for native JSON and semi-structured data processing and preview, can now use RDS for MySQL and Amazon Aurora MySQL databases as a data source for federated querying. Ability to easily move clusters between AWS availability zones and a new instance type, the RA3.xl plus nodes with managed storage, uh, which one of the things we complained about with the last setup is that they did not manage the storage for you. They are now doing that with a new RA3, uh, which is great. And so this all led me to an epiphany that I'm misguided in thinking that they're going to re- release a snow killer. They're just going to make Redshift kill snow. Mm. They're going to do it quietly and in the night, and they're just going to keep announcing all these amazing features and just keep going head to head with snow until they can start crushing them with these features and then basically take over world domination that way. So instead of making a new product to compete with Redshift, they're going to make Redshift just do it, which makes more sense, actually, and probably why we didn't see anything at reInvent this year. Mm. Did you see the article recently about the uh, CEO of Snow? Snowflake, so no. and how much what, what his uh, monthly remuneration is valued at right now? It's around ninety million dollars a month or something in, in options yeah, and uh, everything else. Yeah, I mean the automatic table optimization is you know like this is what I was expecting. This type of announcement was what I was expecting during Andy's keynote. You know, and I would have given you the point on that one. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, like <laughs> yeah. Well, that, that no. leads us to Warner's keynote, which if it had you know if we had said that the prediction show would be across both Warner's keynote and Andy's keynote, it would have been like the presidential election. You guys would have thought that Ryan won, and then I would have crushed you all today <laughs> after the Warner keynote because he announced pretty much everything I predicted, which is amazing, but makes me super cranky because it was in the Warner keynote. I also would have cried that you know the election's rigged and <laughs> yeah, exactly. the whole thing. <laughs> Recounts and recounts would have been fake news, etc. I mean, it was fair because I mean, Werner didn't announce anything last year. That's true. Yep, or the year before that, or the year before that. So I don't mind the way I lost. I'm just happy I got what I got because I'm super happy about it. So let's get into that. So Werner did his keynote from Amsterdam, where he has been stuck since COVID started. 
you know, taking a business trip apparently at the beginning of a pandemic is a bad call as he has now spent the entire COVID situation in Amsterdam enjoying his hometown. I can think of worse places. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I know. I was like, I was like, I can think of much, much worse places I would not want to be. I love Amsterdam. It's a fantastic city. So, you know, good for him. I'm super glad. So he did his keynote from a old sugar factory, which was sort of interesting as a stage. You know, he basically walked around and talked about the sugar factory and how it, you know, used to be, a, you know, manufacturing, you know, might and all that stuff. And then it's gone, you know, onto the wayside as a decrepit sugar factory. Now, it's not a sugar factory anymore. It's a vacant building with old industrial machines. He made a lot of connections to IoT and to manufacturing and the changes to manufacturing. And that's kind of the theme of his presentation, which is interesting. But I did, it did sorely lack slides. <laughs> so as he announced stuff, he would talk about them. And you're like, was that an announcement or was that, was that him just talking? So we, there was some stuff, though, that came out. And so we'll get into that here in a second. But what do you guys think of the keynote? I think he always does a great job of, you know, for a while, you expected him to have all the coolest announcements. And then it became more morphed into Warner really doing a good job of explaining why Amazon does certain things and why certain basic foundational ideas of everything we do, why they're important instead of just assuming everyone understands it. And it's always enlightening for me, even if I think I understood it for for him. And like, I thought the sugar factory example around the two generators and just redundancy and the importance of no downtime was cool because it's things that we do and people were thinking of this in the 1800s. I always enjoy listening to his keynotes, whether or not he announces new features. He's, the passion that he has for the work that he does is is just so compelling. It's so exciting to see him being so excited about you know, what the company's worked for for years is actually doing. The whole sugar factory thing was interesting. I was waiting for him to say, because he, he mentioned several times that three months out of the year, it's, it's full on, but nine months out of the year, it just sits there. I was thinking, I was thinking is this a serverless thing? Like, why pay for stuff? <laughs> yeah. Why pay for stuff year round when you only need it three months out of the year? Didn't go there, but the redundancy was, was interesting. Yeah, overall, it was a, another solid performance. It was pre-recorded. It was not live, I don't think. But, you know, I, that was good. I thought it was well done. Again, I think the changing the scenery every, you know, going to different parts of the factory as he went through the presentation gave it a good flow. And I, I think it worked out well. So it's, it's, again, another great one to watch. I think all the keynotes this year, even the ML one, if you're into ML, uh, I'm not, uh, were good keynotes. <laughs> Most of them were live other than Warner's. And, and, you know, based on the production quality of Warner's, you know, I just... You can see why they didn't do that. It, it required cuts and all kinds of things, which would be difficult to do in a live a live feed like that. Are you sure, are you sure it wasn't live? Because he tweeted on the morning or the day before he did the in the, uh, the day before the keynote that you know he, he was kind of sitting there re- with his script and everything that he was going to read. So I mean, I suppose they could have recorded it after he did that, but mm, I don't know. Maybe it was live. I, someone can correct us if it was. I wasn't sure. I'll find out. Yeah, you will correct us next week on the follow up. <laughs> right. I mean, you, you like correcting me, so. <laughs> <laughs> Only because I just said it, Jonathan. And then you already said 100 again. <laughs> uh, excuse me. <laughs> it's more of a comment on the fact that you don't listen to me, Jonathan. That's what it was. <laughs> so the first one up was a major announcement in observability in the Warner keynote, and that is the Amazon managed service for Grafana. And I did see some people, and I engaged in some conversation on Twitter about people saying, oh, here comes Amazon again, beating up the open source you know, vendor and stealing their open source code and, and all kinds of stuff, which was interesting, a little back and forth on that. But uh, this is actually a partnership with Grafana Labs. 
They're excited to announce that in preview, the managed service for Grafana is a fully managed service that makes it easy to create on-demand, scalable, and secure Grafana workspaces to visualize and analyze your data from multiple sources. They're calling this AMG for short, and AMG will give you a fully managed and secure data visualization where you can query, correlate, and visualize operational metrics, logs, and traces across all your multiple data sources, including cloud services such as AWS, Google, and Microsoft. AMG is integrated natively into CloudWatch, Elasticsearch, X-Ray, IoT, SiteWise, TimeStream, and more already and coming, as well as it does the to integrate into Datadog, Splunk, ServiceNow, and New Relic. It does support paging through SNS as well as native integrations into PagerDuty, Slack, VictorOps, and OpsGenie. There's no upfront investment required. You pay for the monthly active user licenses, meaning you can provision everyone but only pay for those who actually use it, which is great for a lot of companies because you have one person who needs it once a quarter versus the ops guys who need it every day, but you don't want to pay for both because it's a bummer. So you only pay for those who actually used it. And this comes in at for an editor who's actually creating these dashboards and these days it's $9 for active user. And for the viewer, it's $5 for active user. And then with the Grafana Enterprise Partnership, you can get that through Marketplace and add it to your capability, which gets you the enterprise plugin support and training content directly from Grafana Labs. Enterprise will start you out at $3,500 per month base, plus $36 a month per editor admin and $10 per viewer. And it also gets you access to trailer training and on-demand training content from Grafana. So this is kind of what Google and Azure have done with their partners, where they've, they've offered their capabilities through the partnerships. They did it with Redis. They've done it with others as well. And basically made it, and this is a big change in direction for what AWS has done typically with these open source vendors. So is this the beginning of a change or is it just they felt like it was the right thing to do for Grafana and they're not going to do it for anybody else? <laughs> That's the question. I mean, maybe it's that they, you know, Grafana wanted to play under the rules that Amazon requires them to play under. And maybe Amazon gave all of the other open source vendors that opportunity and they all said, no, thank you. And so... Amazon was left to compete with them. There's a couple of things. I mean, it, it kind of competes with CloudWatch and CloudWatch dashboards and insights. And so it would be weird to have them run their own service, which com- directly competed with that of another team. I also don't think you could charge $3,000 a month for CloudWatch. And so by partnering with somebody else, it's kind of like, oh, hey, you're not paying us, you're paying them. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Like the... You know, CloudWatch can get expensive very fast. <laughs> it can do. That's that's so point. <laughs> like it's it you know like it's one of those things where like how many metrics would it take me, especially custom metrics, to get to three thousand dollars a month? It, yeah. Again, you only need that if you need the enterprise plugins, which are typically for integrations into things like ServiceNow or Jira, that kind of thing. But if you just need monitoring, you know, you get that basically that basic service from Amazon for nine dollars per user, and there's no minimum fee on that. So I mean, I definitely think. It's one of those services that it's designed to grow with you. It, when you want enterprise features, it's available to you. The one area I'm a little confused about is, you know, Grafana Enterprise providing you 24 by 7 by 365 support is part of the enterprise deal. Is that is there some weird carve out then for how Amazon supports it and they don't support it as part of a native service? That doesn't make sense to me, though. So I, mm-hmm. that part's a little weird. And I don't know what the what's the handoff like. Do I open my case with Grafana or do I open my case with AWS and they hand it to Grafana Enterprise? That part, I'm a little confused about still, and I'll get some more research on that and get back to you on it. Definitely interesting. You know, I guess a lot of the work, especially around integrations, I mean, it's a lot of work to keep up with integrations. If ServiceNow or anybody else changes their APIs or changes their schemas, then Grafana has to do the legwork to make sure the product is still compatible. And so it makes sense that Amazon don't want to be bothered with that. So they're doing it with their SaaS connector for like their Zapier competitor. (laughs) Whatever that's (laughs) called. I don't remember this minute. AppFlow, that one? Yeah, Flow, AppFlow. Thank you. So many products. (laughs) (laughs) 
Well, you know, if you're at home saying, well, I love Grafana, but I use Prometheus, so this isn't good enough for me. Amazon's got your back on that one, too, with the second announcement, which Mm. is Amazon managed services for Prometheus. This is a 100% Prometheus compatible offering. Use the same metrics, the same prom QL queries, and use up to 150 plus Prometheus exporters. And it runs in multiple AZs and is powered by the CNCF Cortex product for horizontal scalability. It'll easily scale to ingest, store, and query millions of time series metrics. And the preview supports EKS and ECS, as well as the ability to monitor your self-managed Kubernetes cluster that is running on-premise or in another cloud. You can also use the AWS distro for open telemetry to scrape Prometheus data from other Prometheus systems and pull them into AMP as well. And pricing on this one, though, is a bit more complicated. Your first 2 billion samples will cost you about two one-hundredths of a penny for 10,000 samples, and then scale down from there as you scale up your sample sets. Metric storage is billed at $0.03 per gigabyte, and query processing minutes to the querying is at $0.14, some change, per query minute. Uh, I think that's two-tenths of a penny per 10,000 samples. Not two hundredths. Uh, sorry, I was going to say something, but you know, <laughs> <laughs> I, was expe- I was expecting Jonathan to correct me as I said it out loud. I was like, I messed that up, but it's okay. <laughs> <sighs> it's good times. Good times. Uh, good thing we're all friends here, right? <laughs> mm-hmm, yeah. <laughs> Hello, I'm Mark, co-founder and chief product officer at Open Raven. Understanding the type of data you have in the cloud is step one for the security of any organization. Does this cloud storage object contain personal information, healthcare information, financial information, or even developer secrets? Once OpenRaven discovers the location of your data, we classify it and report on the sensitive data you have. PowerPoints to Parquet files, CSVs to source code. OpenRaven finds the risks to your sensitive data, whatever your cloud scale. Visit openraven.com slash the cloud pod to learn more and start a free trial to discover, classify, monitor, and protect the data you have in the cloud. So between this Prometheus and this Grafana thing, I think this would be a point for me if this was in the Andy keynote. So, you know, there you go. There's a point that I would have gotten and I, I would have been tied with Ryan at that. So then, but it could have, should have, could have, should have, would have. It's all right. It's all right. There's also a bunch of systems manager announcements that came out uh, during the keynote as well, although he didn't mention any of these on stage. So they just kind of got dropped. So we'll talk about those real quick. The systems manager now consolidates application management data. Apparently, people who were so impressed with systems manager for infrastructure decided they also wanted it for apps. And so now it supports apps. So you can see a unified application management dashboard inside of Systems Manager to see all the things about your apps and the infrastructure that those apps are running on top of. That was a weird one. I don't who wants the, no one's used the Systems Manager clearly. That's why they want that. <laughs> the next one's up is the Systems Manager Fleet Manager, which is a new console-based experience in Systems Manager that enables system admins to view and administer their fleets of managed instances from a single location. This works for Windows, Linux, and Mac. Of course, because Mac is the new plaything of AWS. And this all requires this systems manager agent gets installed on each server to be managed either on-prem or in the cloud and setting some IAM and KMS permissions. So that's a, this is kind of the baseline for what you need to get ECS anywhere and EKS anywhere working is this probably fleet manager capability. And so this is uh, making that available for all of your systems to use systems manager through the fleets. So that's kind of nice. Yeah. And especially since they've moved to sort of centralized dashboarding in, you know, like a, a management account or a dedicated system manager account, like these things are super important just because you might have, you know, lots of different teams to de- deploying and managing these fleets, but needs to be tracked centrally by an ops team or, you know, an SRE team. So 
If you're an ITIL fan and you love change management, the new Systems Manager change manager capability is available for you now as well. This is a new fully implemented ITIL compliant change management capability built into AWS that allows you to, uh, allows your ops engineers to track, approve, and implement operational changes to their apps and infrastructure. Using the change manager has a couple advantages. First, it can improve the safety of changes made to app configs and infrastructure and reduces the overall risk of service disruptions. And it also has the ability to track those changes that are only approved and before they're implemented, as well as it integrates into Amazon orgs and single sign-on and integrates with the change calendar feature, which if it didn't, I would have been mad. And of course, <laughs> CloudWatch alarms. And it costs you 29 cents per change request, plus any API requests you're making to the rest of the systems manager to do that, which is great. I think there's a great V1 version of this. When it can actually grant access to the cloud based on the approved change or not, it'd be really cool. So if it can, if I am permissions can now all of a sudden start referencing change manager status for permissions, that would be really cool. So I'm hoping that's going to come. I had to make a PFR for that tomorrow before I forget. I think when they originally announced the change manager, we sort of looked at what its availability was for like event triggering other automation. So it looks like they're moving towards a step where it would be just natively part of the product. So cool. The change calendar was just pretty limited. It just prevented you from doing things. But yeah, you're like, well, I need more than that. And that's, this is kind of what that is. Yeah, I mean, I feel like when we're doing everything infrastructure as code, our change request is our pull request and our approval is our approval and merging. And then our Terraform run is the apply, right? So I don't know how I would integrate this tool right now into that workflow until it's triggering that automation. It depends. Like it's it's one of those things where depending on how your application is deployed or your you know how it's built and compiled and how it's distributed and upgraded and rolled back, this might provide a place where you can kind of centralize those infrastructure changes and those application changes, you know, and and patch management and all the different changes that can happen to an environment as it's going through its lifecycle. So it's definitely a challenge, and looks like they're working on tools to address that challenge. Yeah. It's interesting because I feel like this is a direct competitive threat to Snow, right? Like you do change management, then you do CMDB or you make config better CMDB. There's all kinds of things you can start doing here that kind of go after ServiceNow, which has been a big competitor or you know, a big partner of theirs for years now. You know, look at all the integrations with you know Service Catalog and Systems Manager already has Snow integrations, etc. Like it's a little interesting to me because I feel like getting into ITIL kind of really starts to step into the ServiceNow world. So that's a little bit interesting to me. Yeah, I mean, we already run our applications on AWS. Why not run our help desk through AWS too? Yeah. I will say this is not the first time if they do, mm -hmm. uh, Amazon has decided to compete with their partners. <laughs> it is not the first time. <laughs> so one step forward with Grafana, one step back with ServiceNow. Perfect. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, then the other point, because Werner is just killing me in this keynote, is, of course, the AWS Cloud Shell, which I desperately wanted and I got. So for Christmas, I'm super happy because I definitely wanted this feature. The new Cloud Shell is there with the goal of making the process of getting an AWS-enabled shell prompt simple and secure with as little as friction as possible. This gives you a console web browser shell environment that has the AWS CLI installed, as well as some other common Ambin tools. The shell is based off Amazon Linux 2 and can store up to 1 gig of files per region in the home directory, including Bash RC. That data is not going away. So you have one gigabyte for your shell, no matter which, you know, whatever you turn on today or in a week from now. Unless, of course, it's been over 180 days and then they delete it. So be careful about that part. 
You can also access the shell via a single sign-on or an IAM principle to your IAM permissions. And you can have multiple tabs open for the same region as well as control the tabbing behavior and split horizontally and vertically. So if you like all those fun shell things, uh, you can do that. You can also download files from the shell environment to your desktop and upload them back up, as well as it supports a timeout and resume feature of 20 minutes. So it'll resume where you left off and does provide persistent storage, uh, which again will last up to 180, 120 days does currently not have access to your VPC, so you cannot connect to the shell and then SSH to a box. They did very clearly say in Jeff Barr's blog post that it is on the roadmap. So it's coming soon to a day sometime soon. And then they also have the ability to support all these great tools, including Python, Node, Bash, PowerShell, JQ, Git, ECS CLI, SAM CLI, NPM, and PIP all available to you natively in the box. I did go play with Screen earlier. Screen works on this. I know Jonathan's a big screen fan. You can go start a session and kind of walk away from it. Although it will get hung, uh, it won't continue processing the background. But uh, you can install things. I did a yum install. I did a sudo. All the things that you would expect to be able to do with a shell, all available to you. I thought it'd be more locked down, but it's not. And you can use up to 10 concurrent shells in a region at no charge. I understand that right now this is a soft limit that will be available to be increased sometime in the future, and I assume with a charge, although there's no charging announced uh, for anything over 10 concurrent shells currently at this time. So there you go. That is the new command line access cloud shell. So welcome, Amazon, to what Google and Azure have had for years. <laughs> my first feature request is going to be just let me provide the container image with my own tools in so that I can mm-hmm. provide everything I need for my support teams to support the applications I have. Mm-hmm. It definitely looks like it's running on top of Fargate in your account. I think that's oh, most likely sure. scenario. Yeah. I thought maybe it was Firecracker initially, but then I, the more I more I researched, the more I looked at the, you know, the UPROC and all that stuff, it's like, yeah, no, this is this is Fargate. So I think it's a good solution. It's a great use case for Fargate. Think about all the simplicity, though. Like now every training class you do, you don't have to spend 45 minutes getting everyone to understand how to install the tools and get Python working properly and all that, which is great. So again, I think this is this is awesome. I'm excited to see what they do with it in the future. It's, you know, a little bare bones still. You know, the fact that a kit can connect to VPCs on day one, even with an ENI attachment, kind of annoyed me a little bit. But, uh, you know, you can run SSM commands from your CLI. So I guess you kind of got it. You just, it's a bit of a, hope, a little, couple of jumps uh, to get there. Yeah. I've never tried to start like an SSM session manager session using the command line. I should try that, but I think that'd be kludgy. But yeah, I mean, this is A, it saves me a ton of work because I was going to have to provide my own version of this if I didn't do it. So like for the day job. So this is fantastic for me, but it, you know, to be really usable, it'll probably need that VPC connection. Mm-hmm. Finally. That's going to be hard to to manage the security for though. I mean, some users get access to the network, some users don't, some users, I mean, giving somebody network access is different than using IAM to give them access to a, a control plane. Well, you know, maybe they're working on a zero access network protocol thing too that's coming later that, you know, why, why this is in the roadmap but not out yet. Because I agree with you, I think that you make all of your Fargate, you know, cloud shells running, basically be able to have full access to your network, that might not be what you want. And then trying to do tags or some other type of IAM construct to limit their access would be crazy. So you can kind of see that this might lead to a zero network access solution sometime in the future, because that's the only way you'd be able to do it. Or some sort of tight integration with Systems Manager, you know, to manage that session or proxy that session, you know, because that's how they do it. They already have that concept. But that is a problem, actually. It's not a huge project, but basically you have that problem with Google because the project so basically, if, you, if you're in the project and you're admin, you know, you're open your shell and you're in the project, that project has access to every network resource in the project. So, you know, that's why Google has zero trust access <laughs> networking for the same reason, because that's how they restrict it on their system. So you can see how you get there really quickly. So maybe, again, we're talking about things that, you know, what is Colm doing on the IAM team these days? Uh, you know, 
potential projects. So we'll see where that goes in the future. And then the uh, last big announcement from the keynote, which I did not predict, and I would not have predicted it because I didn't even think about it, but Amazon has decided to get into chaos engineering, uh, which is why they've touted the, the amazingness of Netflix and their use of chaos engineering on top of their platform to trust failures. They never had an offering. There's actually a couple of startups like Gremlin out there that you know uh, make this easy to do simulation testing in your systems to inject faults. Amazon is doing it for you with the AWS Fault Injection Simulator, a fully managed chaos engineering service that makes it easier for teams to discover an application's weaknesses at scale in order to improve performance, observability, and resiliency. Chaos engineering for the native cloud provider is really great, and I really like this as well. Uh, you can use this in periodic game days or as a continuous delivery pipeline integration, so it's always breaking your system. And I think this is probably the beginning of a lot of really cool tools in this space, maybe from Amazon in the future. Performance testing comes into play. Other security-type attacks might come into this as well in the future, so it should be really cool. I think that may be one of my oldest feature requests, actually, was an implementation of something like Chaos Monkey so that we could simulate S3 being down or something else being down. I'm just waiting for the first outage that's caused by somebody accidentally running a, a fail test on something that wasn't ready for it or <laughs> or out of scope. <laughs> Maybe they can integrate to that change manager and then they can make sure you can't do it. <laughs> they see it seems like the perfect type of service too for the cloud provider to be offering since they probably know more than we do about what things we can inject. And yeah, like you said, things that you maybe it would be really difficult for us to engineer that they could do pretty easily as they advance on the back end around simulating the failures of or latency created in their APIs or other things that'd be challenging for us to create on our own. And we're going to take a commercial break for 10 seconds. All right, moving on to Google Cloud. They have done a couple different things this week. First up is the Google Cloud run has now received minimum instances. Uh, this is to avoid the dreaded cold start. As every serverless process has a cold start problem. And so if you can predict the minimum number of instances that you need to have in your system to handle early morning load before your load really ramps up, you can now tell Google what that should be. And they will make sure that you have that many warm nodes sitting there ready for your load to come in at any time. Serverless servers. Serverless servers that are always running. Awesome. I'm, I'm a full circle. <laughs> uh, this dramatically improves the time it takes for latency-sensitive apps to spin up containers on Cloud Run. You can set the minimum number of containers, like I mentioned, and this allows more off-the-shelf applications to take advantage of Cloud Run per Google. Uh, after the free tier, you will pay an idle fee charge on your minimum instances if they are not processing data. I tried to go figure out what this costs us if we were to do this, but the calculator wasn't updated, and we're talking about like one millionth of a pennies. Like, it's crazy what the numbers are on these cloud run processes. So I don't have a good uh, answer for what this costs because I didn't do the Excel work Jonathan would have done because I didn't want to. <laughs> you know, so that's where we're at on that. But uh, yeah, so it's interesting. It does not, you know, I think on the Amazon space, when you did this, you would pay the same fee for instance, you know, for a Lambda function that's warm versus not. This is a discounted price, which I thought was kind of interesting. It's not significantly discounted, but it's a little bit. And so it's rounding errors really at the, big day, at the end of the day, but it's nice to see. I don't just want them to be warm when I'm not using them, though. I always want, like, N plus something. So if, if I've got 10 busy ones, I want them to spin up some others preemptively, but I don't think that's a feature yet. Always get some ready for me. I wish that it was using more ML AI, and it would just do this for me. And so I can enable this capability that would use look at my usage patterns and say, hey, based on prior usage, I'm going to do this thing for you. That would be ideal, but it's not there yet. So hopefully that will come in the future at some point. As well. Yeah, I guess you still have to set some limits to it, though, because otherwise you'd end up with a bill of something you didn't want. Basically paying for the same for a compute instance, right? So. 
<laughs> How about charge me for the actual compute cycles? And it's your responsibility, Mr. Cloud Provider, to be smart about your resource utilization to drive that price down. It will drive your profits up or drive your price down and be more competitive. Trillionth of a penny per CPU instruction or something. <laughs> yeah, whatever. Yeah. Well, there's a, a cautionary tale for you here uh, that I'd like to share. How not to spend $72,000 <laughs> overnight. So apparently, Sadeep Chawan, founder of startup Milky Way, accidentally spent $72,000 on a cloud run service he built. Uh, so apparently he's doing some type of scanning of uh, web pages and he basically ended up creating a recursive loop on accident, which basically would loop around itself. And he thought he was protected because he set a budget on Google Cloud of $7 and said, ah, oh, well, you know, even if this is bad code, it'll, it'll stop at $7, not understanding that budgets don't actually stop anything on Google or in AWS or in Azure. Well, actually, they do in Azure, but anywhere else they don't. So if you have a budget, you will run through that budget. It'll tell you you ran through the budget, and then uh, you'll keep going. So that's a bit of a uh, you know, rookie mistake and something that you know happens to all of us when we you know don't understand how billing works in a cloud provider. And then he you know, goes on to that he had set the concurrency of this thing up to 1,000 maximum instances and a concurrency of 80. So you know this recursive loop just got much, much worse. And he apparently did uh, over 116 billion reads and 33 million writes to Firestore over 24 hours it was running. And he did point out that it was able to scale beautifully to handle that load without any problem. Google, of course, was nice enough to forgive this bill, but he did mention one thing that I think is important to know about all the cloud billing systems, including AWS and Azure. You know, he, when he first woke up the next morning when he did this, his bill was only $5,000. And then as the day progressed, it kept going up and up and up because the billing system is always delayed <laughs> by some period of time. So anytime you set up billing alerts and all that kind of stuff, it is not as helpful as you may think it is because it is not, it is not real time. It is slightly delayed up to as much as 24 hours in this case. And so these are good lessons for anybody who's getting started in the cloud world. Billing is not instantaneous. Budgets don't actually think, they don't do what you think they do and be wary. Of course, Google was nice enough to forgive the bill because they wrote this blog post. I'm sure it was part of the stipulations of it that you write, you tell about this mistake and you go on a tour explaining how this happened and how we still scaled amazingly for you, even though you created a terrible recursive loop, which is great. But, uh, you know, just cautionary tales for those of you out there in the cloud world. Mm. With the coverage this has got, they couldn't have bought the same PR for that much money. But it doesn't do much for the guy with the startup, though, because, you know, rookie mistakes. Well, I mean, we say rookie mistakes, but look at what he did compared to, you know, like he put a budget in place. He had the alerts in there. He set the concurrency. Like he did a lot of things right that a lot of people don't do, right? They do the same recursion error and then they don't have any of those limits or guardrails in place. And so rookie mistakes isn't, isn't meant to be offensive. Rookie mistakes is rookie mistakes. I mean, because <laughs> <laughs> if his budget was $7, max, setting max instances to 1,000 doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Well, I don't know if he set them to a thousand or it defaulted to a thousand. That's the way I read it in the article. That yeah, I think it's, I think it's default for yeah. sure. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's just one of those things. I've seen this story go down a number of a number of times. You know, the other way where it's like this: I did a simple thing, and it ended up going, you know, and without any of the guardrails. And so it's. I thought that was the interesting takeaway for me was that someone who is being very cautious about their cost spending and thinks they're doing all the right things can still end up with like an unexpected $70,000 bill. Yeah, that's and that's a big one. Yeah. Especially for a startup, right? Like that's that's a big amount of money. That's a uh, huge amount. Yeah. Yeah. So glad Google did the right thing there. I was I was worried as I read the story. I'm like, oh, don't tell me Google screwed him over on this bill. And luckily it ends, it ends very well that they forgive him this bill. Otherwise, I'm sure Corey would have melted down the internet by now. Yeah. <laughs> so Absolutely. 
And on the other side, $72,000 to write a blog post is a fee that anyone, if you're out there listening, can pay me and I will <laughs> gladly do the same. <laughs> Indeed. That uh, seems like easy money, doesn't it? <laughs> All right. Well, next up is a Spanner feature. So Cloud Spanner allows you to easily get a high availability, massively scalable relational database as long as you don't mind being completely locked into Google Cloud. This enables Google Cloud customers to innovate on applications without worrying about whether the database backend will scale to meet their needs. To make it easier than ever before, they're announcing the release of the Autoscaler tool. This is an open source tool on GitHub that watches key utilization metrics and adds or removes nodes as needed based on those performance metrics. You can jump in quickly with Terraform code in the GitHub repository, and it's all available to you today. I do find this weird, though, because why is this just not a feature of Spanner? It makes no sense to me. Yeah, as I was reading this, that's exactly what I was thinking. Like, what? Well, you have to pay for the service that auto scales to save you money. You run a separate spanner database for this tool, by the way. I didn't mention that part. That but you know, how about, monitors that the one? other one. <laughs> <laughs> it's auto scales all the way down, Jonathan. <laughs> yeah. All right. And then our last uh, story is a little bit of a holiday story. Google has used the power of AI because they have nothing else to do to bake cookies. The perfect cookies. Oh, goodness. Uh, an entire <laughs> blog post about how they took machine learning ingredients and the parameters of the ingredients, and they basically had the ML system create a new hybrid cookie slash bread, and they're calling it the breaky, which is part cookie, part bread, if you didn't catch that. Sure to be a hit at all of your holiday parties. You can go check that out. Uh, but it, you know, again, if you're looking for kind of a model use cases for big you know, machine learning, big data, these are always fun examples to kind of show people like, here's the power it can do. And it can take all these parameters of taste and flavor and fluffiness and come up with something like the breaky, which I have not made yet, but uh, maybe I'll do that over the Christmas break. Well, if it's bread, I would think it's brekky. <laughs> and if it's brekky, the AI didn't do a good job of double checking to see other English speaking countries who use that as a short for breakfast. I guess the, the AI, yeah. AI didn't name it and the AI suddenly didn't taste it either. So, you know, buy a bit, <laughs> buy a bit wet. <laughs> yeah, really. I heard it was good. I yeah. don't know. Actually, talking about hearing things, they, they all, the Google also have the Blow Opera, which is a, something I pasted into our random Slack earlier today, where you can kind of drag these blobs around and change the tone they make and they all sort of harmonize and sing like holiday songs powered by machine learning. I think it's just what they do with all the infrastructure they have lying around when they're not calculating the umpteenth digit of pi. They're like, <laughs> um, what do we do? <laughs> Cookie recipe. Got it. Yep. Perfect. I prefer the cookies over the music. <laughs> Especially oh. if it's holiday music. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Rough, rough. All right. Well, on to Azure, who has one story for us. Uh, they have they have taken the holidays off. They are they are out to lunch. <laughs> they took the last six months off. <laughs> I mean, it feels that way. Like COVID has been rough on Microsoft. That's that's all I can say. At least on the announcement front. I think they're all just working on Jedi. I think that might be a big part of it too. But they are uh, letting us know how they're going to take steps to improve internet routing security. Of course, because they were uh, recently had an impacted outage due to BGP poisoning. And of course, you know, BGP poisoning is one of the most common attacks that's happening out there in the space, other than ransomware or solar winds vulnerabilities. So yeah, add this one to your list. You know, bad actors have poisoned BGP for all different ways and have caused large-scale DDoS attacks through that, stolen data through it, and lost revenue and reputational damages for companies. And so Microsoft is planning to take action defined by the Manners Cloud and CDN program, and those include a new resource public key infrastructure object validation, and actually, I mean, actually validating the route's good before they route traffic to it. Huh, so weird. And then enhanced collaboration with the peer networks and the registries to make sure they're getting valid updates. So this is the bare minimum you can do to make BGP much more healthy. 
at this point in time. And so I'm glad to see Azure is going to do that. They dropped an entire thousand or fifteen hundred word blog post on this topic. So you're welcome. Curious more about this, you can go read about all of that on the Azure blog, uh, which is the only story other than a riveting 2020 look back of their billing system updates, because Azure is really proud of their billing system, which I saved all of you from. So you're welcome. <laughs> thank you. Yeah. I will thank you personally. Yeah. Someone's right. got to read that and take the hit. I appreciate it. It's not me. Yeah. I, I see you forgot the Oracle news this week, though. There was Oracle news, too. <laughs> there was? What was the Oracle news? Larry Ellison's leaving California. He's moving to Hawaii. For a minute, oh, yeah. for, for a minute, I thought he was going to move to, to Texas, but no. Thankfully, he's moving even further away. <laughs> well, he he always owned. I mean, he always owned an island in Hawaii, at least for the last few years, anyway. So it makes sense that he would go there. And then, yeah, they did move their headquarters from uh, you know the Bay to Austin. Apparently, they announced following uh, Elon Musk. So I didn't think it was really cloud relevant, but you you know you had to fly through the clouds to get there. I guess I just got to get my digs in once in a while. Yeah, <laughs> <I know. laughs> it's always fun to pick on Larry. I missed Oracle Open World this year. You know, they didn't really do it, so sad. All right, Peter, take us to Lightning Round. AWS Security Hub now supports bi-directional integration with ServiceNow ITSM. Because you can move your workload into the cloud, but you can't pry that ITSM tool out of security's hands, no matter what you do. Oh, no, you can't. I can see the messages now. It's like, please stop sending me the same alert. <laughs> I fixed this already. <laughs> yeah. Simplify EC2 provisioning and viewing cloud resources in the ServiceNow CMDB with the AWS Service Management Connector for ServiceNow. Nothing so simple like ServiceNow, CMDB, and a connector. From the Department of Cloud Anti-Patterns. Mm-hmm. Oof. You can move your workload to the cloud, but you'll pry that idea to a lot of the operations. <laughs> I'm going to try this one again. <laughs> The AWS IDE toolkit is now available for AWS Cloud9. Asking you the question, what was Cloud9 before, if not yet an IDE that now has an IDE toolkit? Eh, I don't know. Amazon QuickSight now supports Amazon Elasticsearch service and adds new box plot and filled map visualizations. Product manager of Amazon Elasticsearch Service says, "How do I improve my service? I know I'll add QuickSight to it. Mm, <laughs> that's rough. Not rough review season coming up for him, I think. To be fair, it probably didn't make it any worse than it already was. <laughs> that's true. AWS Global Accelerator launches custom routing. So just to make it more confusing, where the system actually lives, we now give you custom routing to make it even more confusing. Thank you for that." Really appreciate it. Which region is it again? Well, if it's going to the slash wackadoo, it's in US East 1. And if it's in the slack wackadoos, it's in US West 2. And if it's in, I don't know, it's in Virginia. I don't know. No, it's always like, hey, now you can send your traffic through this other thing that costs some more money. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, really. <laughs> Basically. <laughs> and I think Unified Search in the AWS Management Console. I like it, but not a lot. I just fear change. So it's been frustrating me all week since the announcements. Since the <laughs> just leaves things where they are, but fix the UI. So mm. they just added a big box on the top. It's a big search. And then you, you type things in and expect to get some back and you get documentation as a result, which is kind of interesting. But it used to just do, it was, I mean, that used to just be services. And so I could type in, you know, RT53 and it would just give me the service. But now it's like, how to deploy a hosted zone? I'm like, oh, I don't care. 
I figured there was going to be some reason why they moved those useful buttons someplace else and put this thing in its place. And here we are. Yeah. New stuff, free RTOS long-term support to provide years of feature stability. Which is only two years of support. So long-term is a bit suspect. Hey, it's way longer than my attention span. <laughs> fair, fair, <laughs> very fair. Facts, facts, Ryan. But, you know, this is showing me that there was a ton of IoT stuff this week as well that I did not also put in the show because unlike like RetroChip, it would have been another 45 minutes of IoT. And so if you're an IoT person listening to the show, we love you, but we have nothing to say about it. And so if you're interested, there's a lot of IoT recap stuff on the AWS blog that can help you out. Although Jonathan did cause me to spend $50 on an IoT device for my house, teach my kids about IoT. So hopefully they'll be able to educate me at some point in the future. Oh, you didn't buy all the extras that come with it. There's the battery, there's all there's the relay, there's the servo control. So you can spend at least $100. If you I need. would like a manifest, please. I think that I found what I want for Christmas <laughs> that I will have my kids buy me. Well, I have one coming. <laughs> I also have the iRobot Root, which is their cool little robot that you can control oh. with, uh, with code. But actually, going back to the whole... Um... Yep, attention span. Free, R- <laughs> free RTOS long-term support? <laughs> No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I wish I was kidding. So whoever came up with long-term support it is absolutely fantastic because they're literally capitalizing on not doing any work for the next two years. No changes to APIs, no nothing. Hmm, perfect. AWS Personal Health Dashboard now supports organization-wide event aggregation. I really appreciate that we've recreated the AWS Global Status page for my accounts. This also reminds me of something I forgot to mention up in the AWS Cloud Shell thing. So when your shell approaches 120 days and your data is going to be deleted, they send you an alert via the personal health dashboard. And my response to that is, so you didn't tell me at all. Thanks. Yeah. So the tree fell in the forest. Thanks. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> AWS Lambda now supports self-managed Apache Kafka as an event source. I mean, Noah Kafka is truly self-managed. So that's an oxymoron <laughs> to begin with. <laughs> Yeah, I don't see how this is going to go horribly wrong in many application architectures at all. That recursive loop, $75,000 bill, (laughs) I bet this can beat it. (laughs) Yeah. Yes. (laughs) Somebody put something bad in the Kafka. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, I can say that uh, you can make as many witty comments as you want in the lightning round. You are not going to be able to pry that point out of Ryan's hands. (laughs) <laughs> coming for you jonathan <laughs> half, only a half, point. half a point behind now yeah yeah uh, there's only, there's only technically there's only one more week so you know the time is running out very quickly so mm. i'm heading for fourth place in a race with only three people <laughs> <laughs> well jacques does have that point he stole it from all of us uh, a few he weeks did, ago yeah. so well he's funnier than us it makes sense it does <laughs> i just sense. want to remind you all Geez, now I forgot the year, but many years ago, it's, Michael it's, Schumacher. It's 2020. <laughs> thank you. Still? The, the year it happened, Michael Schumacher was ahead by a certain amount going into the last race of the year. As long as he, his, the guy in second place doesn't finish in front of him, he wins the championship. So he takes the guy out in the first turn. And as a result, the commission took away all his points for the entire year. And he did not win. So... You never know what could happen in the last week of the season. This sounds like foreshadowing, and I'm is this, rude. Is this a, <laughs> is this a, is this a bicycle race or is is this NASCAR? This was a Formula One race. A Formula One. Formula One. It's the kind of car racing where they have left turns and right turns. Oh, oh, left yes. and right. That's a level of skill I don't possess. <laughs>
All right. Well, that's another fantastic week and marks the end of reInvent. Although uh, we're recording this on Wednesday, I suspect reInvent still has gifts to give uh, through Friday. So uh, even though the key notes are over, they seem to be just dropping a ton of stuff out, which is great. So we'll cover that next week here at the Cloud Pod, as well as we'll wrap up 2020, the longest year ever. (laughs) Ever. (laughs) We'll look back at our predictions from December last year, except for Ryan, because he didn't exist then. Uh, We couldn't predict that. And then, uh, you know, we'll uh, we'll basically look at our 2021 crystal ball and see where we are headed, or at least where we think we're headed. And then we'll laugh at ourselves in 2021 in December when we look back and go, wow, that was was crazy. So we'll see how that goes. All right, guys, have a great week. Have a good one. Good night. See you. Bye, everybody. And that is The Week in Cloud. We'd like to thank our sponsor, Foghorn Consulting. Subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and tweet us your feedback at hashtag thecloudpod. Or join our Slack channel, go to our website, thecloudpod.net, for sign-up instructions. (laughs) 